my wife once said that the greatest activism is self-activism. I don't think any work can really truly start unless you do that work on yourself. Otherwise, honestly, I hate to say it, it's performative. That's, that's what virtue signaling is. And guess what? Everybody's doing it. Hello, and welcome to the Shiftmakers podcast, where we share the collective wisdom some of our greatest minds have to offer. I'm your host, Marianne Schnall, a writer and journalist. Over the years, I've had the incredible honor of interviewing a variety of remarkable changemakers, and it is my pleasure to share some of these recordings with you for this podcast. Welcome to Shiftmakers. My guest today, Justin Baldoni, is an actor, director, author, and producer. Following his viral TED Talk, Why I'm Done Trying to Be Man Enough, which has been viewed almost 8 million times, Justin released his book, Man Enough, Undefining My Masculinity, and has committed himself to debunking traditional masculinity and redefining what it means to be a man. The Man Enough movement has evolved into a popular podcast with co-host, author, and journalist Liz Plank and award-winning music producer Jamie Heath. The weekly episodes feature candid, compassionate conversations with celebrities, thought leaders, and changemakers exploring how the messages of masculinity show up in relationships, body image, privilege, fatherhood, success, mental health, and so much more. Justin is also the co-founder of Wayfarer Studios, a film and production company focused on equity and social justice, for which he directed the film Clouds, available on Disney+, and through which he also created the Wayfarer Foundation, a nonprofit organization working to transform public perception of homelessness and offer resources to those experiencing it. In this vulnerable and provocative conversation, Justin and I discuss how he sees his work on modern masculinity as a radical act of self-love, his mission to disrupt the Hollywood studio model and enact social change through media, the medicinal value of crying for children, his profound experience interviewing his father for his podcast, how he and his wife parent their own son and daughter, and his journey of growth through learning the art of apology. Well, I am so thrilled to be able to talk to you again. I don't know if you remember, but you and I talked. Of course I remember. It was sort of this amazing moment because you had just given your now viral TED Talk before it was even released. And obviously so much has happened in the wake of the TED Talk. So first of all, congratulations and thank you for all of the work that you've done. And you've had this incredible book, Man Enough, Undefining My Masculinity. And you now have this amazing podcast where you're you know sort of exploring these themes even further. So I don't feel I'm overstating things to say that it feels like this mission has become almost like a bit of a crusade for you. Why has this become sort of your main focus? And what are you like overall most hoping to achieve? Crusade, you know, God, I haven't <laughs> thought of it that way. My first thought was more of a joke, which is like, why? Well, maybe because I'm a masochist and I like to inflict pain on myself. <laughs> Truthfully, I, I think it it feels kind of like a responsibility. It feels like a like a bounty. Because I am aware of it, I can no longer just continue living with blinders on. I feel an obligation to my children, to my wife, my friends, to my parents. I just want to always work on myself. I don't believe in complacency. And so much of this work is healing for me also. So it's an obligation to myself. It's self-love. For me, this is a radical act of self-love. Mm -hmm. Using whatever little platform I have to talk about this and these issues forces me to learn in real time, forces me to go deeper. It's all of the women in my life who just continue to tell me unbelievable stories that you just can't imagine would exist in 
2021. It's my wonderful assistant who is so tired of needing to put me on the phone to be taken seriously by other men. It's like the list goes on and on and on. It's my inability to connect with other men in my kids' school because they're shut down and they don't know how to communicate or they don't they don't feel comfortable unless there's a beer in their hand. It's all of the types of things. And it's for our future. Honestly, it's crazy enough. It's for climate change. It's for peace. All of this work, I believe, connects to a more loving, peaceful, kind future. And my little tiny piece of it is hopefully like one of the billions of bricks that will go into building this bridge to the next generation. No, that's beautiful. And I 100% agree with you. And also, I mean, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because of course, there's a personal thing about men not being allowed to feel or express their feelings. But what are the societal implications? Like, what are the results that the overall impacts of men not being able to be their full selves and repressing their emotions? Look at your Twitter feed. I deleted it from my phone. I still have the, my account, but look at what's happening around the world. Look at politics, look at climate change, look at sexual assault and rape cases, look at suicides, look at crime. It intersects with all of it. I don't think you can separate the conversation of masculinity in men with all of the current events happening around the world that make us feel so hopeless at times. And I've, I've seen you talk about this also. So, you know, some things are sort of like siloed. It's like women's issues, men's issues. And I'm so glad that you have Liz Plank on your show, who I've, I've worked with. She's also a, a colleague. She's wonderful. Isn't she? Hi, Liz. If you're listening, yeah. you're not listening. You have, you've had enough of me. <laughs> Um, no, I love her too. And I, in my work, in my books, on my panels, I always like to have a, a man there because, you know, I, I do think that, you know, these are all human issues. And I think sometimes some issues, like an example of, like, it goes to what you're saying, violence against women, that's connected to how we socialize men or the challenges women face in the workplace are connected to the fact that we don't encourage men to be, you know, caretakers or make it unmanly to do household responsibilities or they're stigmatized for like taking family leave. So oh, that's a big I, one. I, that's a huge one right now is family leave mm -hmm. and men. I mean, even in the Scandinavian countries, they have incredible family leave programs that are very equal. Um, you have men and women who get a chance to take a tremendous amount of family leave when they have a newborn. But what they found is even in those countries that the men won't take it. And my sister-in-law and brother-in-law live in Sweden. They, they just welcomed this beautiful little baby mm -hmm. girl. And I gotta be honest, like I was like jealous. I was so jealous that he got a chance to stay at home for months with her and they did it together. And they, they're even finding now because they actually care and they're doing the research mm -hmm. that if both parents take time off at the same time, it's better for the child. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is they're investing in the future of their country by, by allowing parents to take time off to raise their newborn, connecting with the newborn, hopefully creating a more um, empathetic, compassionate, kind, smart mm -hmm. child that will eventually lead their country. And for me, I, I was just like, I can't even, this feels almost like this utopian future that is that feels so distant. But what they did find was that men were not taking the time off because of the way it would look. Because even in those progressive countries, men still battle with the patriarchy. They still battle with this dominant pyramid scheme culture that says, well, if you're not showing up for work, you're a slacker. 
um, and someone else is better suited for that job. So there was this underlying, like subconscious, unwritten rule that if you were a new father and you took time off, or at least the full time off, right, then you are not seen as a great employee. You're just trying to get off and get some free pay. And so what they had to do is institute this idea of take it or leave it, where they're just going to take it away. Like you can you get this once and then it's gone and it's gone forever. And then they noticed that men started taking it more. So again, they have to they had to like reverse psychology, <laughs> like kung fu, this idea, just to like, battle these ingrained ideas of masculinity and what it means to be a good employee versus a good father and husband, uh, just to get men to take this time off. And, and when I see that, and then I see how far we are behind, and of course, we're making some progress, thank God. It's just like, oh, my goodness, we have such a long way to go. Such a long way to go. And I mean, and, and like what, what you're saying too is I feel like there's so many different institutions and systems that have to be a part of this in terms of the way that media portrays men or our educational systems or what you're saying about business practices, our political systems, you know, with these creating the family policies, all of these things. What do you think would be some changes you think would help what you're saying to sort of encourage these type of changes? It's really hard. I don't even know if I can answer that question because it's kind of a house of cards. It's so systemic. It's so ingrained. And it's like, it, it, it almost be like asking, okay, well, what are some of the ways that we can, we can change our system to uh, eliminate white supremacy? I mean, our system was built on it and it's built on the same power dynamic and power structures. I think white supremacy and patriarchy are intertwined. They're best friends. And so it's very hard to think of like, well, what changes can we make? Because, you know, I mean, just look at capitalism as an example this idea of family leave is tied directly to capitalism. And how are we looking at capitalism in America right now? Well, this idea that there's never enough. There's never enough. There's no amount of success that you can ever achieve that will be enough. It is a carrot being dangled in front of you that the only time you catch it will be when you fall into your grave. Mm -hmm. And we don't ever ask ourselves the question of, well, what is enough? How much do I actually need? Mm -hmm. Why don't we do that? Because it's directly tied to capitalism, because the second we have enough, they can't sell us anything. And you can tie that across any industry on the planet. Mm -hmm. Look at the, the beauty industry. Come on. What did we do as men? We made women feel completely insecure so that they would buy all the products because if they feel enough, then what are we going to sell? Then we're now we're doing the same thing to men. We're doing it in every single area. Social media is simply just becoming a way to sell us something. And yet it's under the disguise of love and popularity and influence, right? We're just becoming more and more subversive with capitalism. So this idea of enough, we've never even asked ourselves that question. Because mm -hmm. if we did, we'd realize that we have enough. Most of us do. Mm -hmm. Like we have so much, but yet we're told we don't have anything. Mm -hmm. um, especially those of us who are privileged uh, and are doing well. And so this idea of enough, like what is enough? How can we start to build that into the school system? How can we start to build that into our everyday lives of looking, okay, how does, how does gratitude work with that? Oh my gosh, I have a roof over my head. I have a job, whatever it is, we're not taught these things. And we're taught to just grind and grind and grind, especially as men and put in the hours and put in the work because we've got to be providers and protectors and all of these things, which yes, some of that is true and some of that is good. But when it becomes all encompassing, we have our blinders on and we can't see the forest through the trees. 
Well, one of the the ways I think we can change this, which I'm grateful to you because you are really sort of be becoming like almost like a, a trailblazer in this is the role of media. And, you know, in addition to, you know, your podcast, which is, is produced by Wayfarer Studios, which is a production company that you founded to sort of do just this, to sort of, you know, elevate projects that um, and develop projects that create social change and also kind of disrupt the Hollywood studio model. And, and can you talk a little bit, how do you see the role of, of media and its ability to shift consciousness, which you're already so powerfully doing in so many ways? We are just beginning. I feel so grateful. I have an incredible team at Wayfair Studios and an amazing partner in Steve Sarowitz. Media is directly intertwined with all of it. It's a part of capitalism, right? In many ways, it's a Trojan horse. We have to be in it, show that we can be successful doing it, and do it in a way that in some ways disrupts the system and helps us all wake up. It's kind of like the matrix, if you will. How do we give people the, the code to the matrix? And how do we do it in an, in an industry that rewards a certain type of behavior and doing things a certain way and go against the grain and do things differently? And it's really hard. I fail all the time. And um, we're going to fail. And we're not going to always get it right. But the goal here is how do we create content that maybe challenges the status quo, that asks us to think a little bit differently, that forces us to go in and re-examine maybe some areas in our own lives that are uncomfortable, that gives people a, a microphone that maybe mm -hmm. haven't had the chance to hold it. And that's what we're trying to do. And we're going to be imperfect. We're going to fall short. We already have. And we're trying and we're trying and we're trying because it is very hard to have commercial success and be a uh, holistic, healthy, profitable company in an industry that doesn't reward what you're innately trying to do. That said, it's also freaking exciting and so empowering. And, you know, you know, we just finished four films, two of them docs, two of them feature length films, you know, two of them on racial justice issues, one of them a teen comedy about female empowerment and body positivity, you know, from a first time incredible female writer, director, it's just really exciting to see what's possible and finding the balance of saying, okay, well, how can we tell this story and also have this be a commercial success? Because we don't want to make art house movies. We don't want to make movies just for the sake of art that people never see. We, we're talking about changing culture, having this conversation around masculinity. What does that look like? How do we inject that as an example into a football movie, which we just did with The Senior, which is another movie that we just finished? And how do we have these subversive conversations in a very, very commercial way? and show other people that it's possible. And also we can be kind and, and do things the right way. So that's our goal. Again, we're going to fall short, but it's a really exciting goal. And I'm just grateful that uh, I'm grateful that I get the chance in this lifetime to even pursue it. Absolutely. Well, I will certainly be cheering you on, supporting you any way that I can, as so needed. You're also in front of, of the camera. Not so, recently. Uh, well, on your podcast. Oh, on the podcast. Say. Yeah, sometimes um, I forget I... that it's videotaped. <laughs> But I think there's something about like us also showing up and being our own role models and the ways that you've been so authentic and, and raw and you interview a lot of celebrities on your podcast. Um, you also interviewed your father and I was so moved watching that. That was just so incredibly powerful. So why was it important for you to have that conversation with your father? What was that experience like for you? Because I know it was really powerful for us watching it. Um. Thank you. It was really hard. We were both really nervous, but we'd been doing work. There, there has been work happening behind the scenes for years. 
that led to this conversation. And in my research and in my interactions with pretty much every man I know, no one has had that conversation with their dad. Very few people have. Not because they don't want to, mostly because the fathers aren't receptive or aren't even around anymore. And I wanted to have a very private, public conversation with my dad to model it, to show men that it was possible, to show maybe fathers who were listening what was possible in terms of how my dad handled it and reacted, and also help people heal. Because there's just a, there's a lot of father wounds that exist in this world right now. One of the things that we don't think about is just the way that trauma affects and intersects with every area of our life. We talk about doing yoga and being a part of a religion and God and all of these types of things and spirituality and all sorts of different ways to heal. But one of the things we don't really think about is like how crucial it is to do that hard work of heart work, as I say in the book, to actually go deep and heal, not just yourself, but the interpersonal relationships that you have because they leak into every area of our lives, especially the ones with our parents. Mm -hmm. So those of us who are lucky to have our father still alive, we have a chance and we need to seize that moment to try and do whatever we can to just connect. Because when they're gone, it's too late. And there's also a lot of women who I've heard from who just never forgave. And they have a right to not forgive. And the amount of messages I've received from women who felt like just simply watching it gave them a chance to have like in their own mind, have that conversation and, and forgive was just profound for me. I had no idea that was going to happen. So really it was about modeling. I think the whole idea of masculinity is modeling it, right? It's monkey see monkey do. You see the rock doing this a little bit. You see LeBron James and some of these huge athletes. The more we talk about these things, the more we talk about healing, the more we model what healthy masculinity looks like, what it means, what it looks like to show feelings and have emotions and not be not bully or shame each other because of it, the more the next generation looks up to that and believes that that's the goal. And so it's all about modeling because we can't become it if we don't see it. I 100% agree. And um, so thank you, because I, I know that was probably in, in private would have been a hard conversation, but to do it so publicly, but um, it, it was, it was, it was hard, but it was amazing. And we both <laughs> it was amazing. Cried. Yeah, I cried. I mean, I cried. I couldn't even stop crying for a lot of it. But it was so mm -hmm. we had private conversations similar to that, but not quite to that extent. Because when you put cameras there and mics there, you go, you're like, oh, this is real. And you go deeper and you go deeper. Season two of Shift Makers was brought to you by the Shift Network. Shift offers courses, programs, and workshops to unlock your full potential through transformative education and media with like-minded allies who are called to create a better world. Visit theshiftnetwork.com to learn more about their online courses, summits, and events. Um, so this next person that I'm, I'm going to mention, I, I, would, I think you might be familiar with her work. Um, she's a colleague and also somebody who I've interviewed numerous times is psychologist Carol Gilligan. She wrote this book in a different voice, and she did all this research at Harvard that looked at, like, what are the ages that boys and girls sort of lose touch with our authentic voice? So what she found was that for girls, it was like around 11 or 12 when they first sort of succumbed to all the social pressures. But for boys, it happened really early. It happened like, happened like I heard four or five, but it's very young. I can't wait to read her book. because I'll, I'll send it to you. But, you know, four or five, the first time, let's say, a boy's wow, at school, he falls. He, he skins his knee, he cries, he's called a sissy, and that's it. He's learned that lesson. So how do you think we can sort of change how we raise our boys and girls so we mm. sort of can intercept that early? And, and the second part to that is 
how has your journey and all that you've learned in your work affected how you raise both your son and your daughter? First of all, I'd love to read that book. That sounds fascinating. You know, and it's interesting, the research that I had done prior had said that seven, eight range. But now that I'm thinking about it, I think she is absolutely right because my son's four. My son just turned four. And I've been noticing little glimpses of what's coming. Boys don't play with princesses, as an example. Like if my daughter wanted to play with a princess and my son wants to play with dinosaurs, and I was like, no, I want you guys to play together. And he would he would say something like, boys don't play with princesses. And I'd be like, oh, hell yes, they do. <laughs> you know, and we start to reinforce those ideas. So I think that that absolutely is probably happening. And of course, where do we learn that? We learn that from dad, generally. Dads make sure that that doesn't happen out of fear in many ways. So but let me go back to the actual answer, which is what I have been doing and something that I've been thinking about for a few years let's call it a great experiment. Who knows if this is going to work or not. But from the very beginning, I've been teaching my kids that the strongest muscle in their body is their heart. And I'm doing that for a reason, specifically for my boy, because the world's going to tell him to grow up and have a strong body. And they're going to forget the heart. The heart holds all of our feelings and the mind holds our reason, if you will. But we, we govern by feeling. Like truthfully, like we have to feel our way through life. And for most of us men, we've lost that connection. As Bell Hooks says, we've engaged at a, at a, in an act of soul murder at a very young age and severed the connection between ourselves and our hearts. And so trying to teach my boy that the heart is the strongest muscle has been a journey. And knowing that the world is going to, no matter what I do, no matter how I raise my kids, the world's going to put my daughter in a box and my son in a box. I'm going to tell my daughter that she has to be polite and behaved and and sweet and not take up too much space and not use a loud voice, be you know gentle and nurturing and all of the various things. And they're going to tell my son the opposite. They're going to tell my son that boys will be boys, that being rowdy is okay, that it's okay to be hyper, that you should take physical risks, that you should take up space, that you can be loud and crack jokes and, you know, make funny poop and pee comments and, you know, be raunchy. They're going to teach him that that's acceptable behavior. And so in some ways, what my wife and I are doing is, um, is reversing that and building a foundation on the op the opposing idea. So reinforcing in my daughter that it's okay for her to take up space and be loud and have an opinion and be athletic and take physical risks and all of these various things. And my son really reinforcing in him the idea that, again, the heart is the strongest muscle, that being a boy is about being kind, and that being sensitive and sweet is beautiful, that crying and showing his feelings and emotions is the most manly boy thing that he could do. And how do I do that? I have to model that. Daddy does that. It's being nurturing. It's being compassionate and empathetic, teaching him what these words are. I've been teaching him these words since he was two. And the more that I can do that and build that strong foundation, I believe the stronger the tree will be mm-hmm. and the more flexible it will be. And like a palm tree in a hurricane, he'll be able to bend and go with the socialization that's coming his way without losing his sense of self. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're working on right now. Will it work? I have no idea because those hurricane gale force winds of socialization are very strong. Mm-hmm. And they might uproot it, but he's home. 
And so long as he's in my home, I can model what that healthy masculinity looks like. And so that's what we're doing right now. And that's what I would encourage anybody who's open to this idea to think about is to just make sure that we are reinforcing the opposing ideas of the narrative of what socialization will teach our children about gender and roles. I do the same thing in, in my house with my two daughters. And I can tell you, I can see the evolution. They are just so much more, you know, centered and, and aware of these messages. You know, change is possible in, in that way. And for anyone listening who has a young boy, one of the things that we're doing that works really well is there's always a moment in an adult life, in a child's life, when something happens and you can see that your child is either about to cry or put on a smile or push through. And we always try to pause in that moment, especially with Maxwell, because I can see like something happened and he, he's about to cry. Mm. And we pause and we say, what are you feeling? Or that made you feel sad, didn't it? Mm -hmm. And that allows them to cry. And so we're just trying to just reinforce that crying is good and healthy. And what do we know about tears? We know that they contain stress hormones. They've measured the chemical makeup of tears. And tears that a young child cries contained stress hormones that the body have to release. Otherwise, they get stored in the body. And so our tears are actually purifying and cleansing us because every day a child has hundreds of micro traumatic events that they store in the body and then they cry them out and then they're fine. Mm -hmm. But it's not until they learn to hold those tears in their body that these illnesses and these things start to happen and they start to build up this resistance, which they think is a good thing, but in reality, it just makes us sick, emotionally sick, physically sick, and it leads to all sorts of things later on in life. And I think that's also what's happening with men. So for people who haven't had the benefit of being raised in this way, so for the man who is really interested in what you're saying and wants to take, go on this journey, what are the first steps for a man to explore these themes for himself? And how can the women or just generally the people in his life support him? I think the first step is humility. And that goes hand in hand with courage and bravery. I think you know, as men, we've been told our whole lives what bravery and courage looks like. But I think it takes real courage and bravery to, to explore these things because mm -hmm. these are themes that are looked down on and criticized and you know bullied but that's also the socialization and part of the problem and it's not the problem so i think humility would be the first saying wow this isn't working for me anymore i feel like i feel like i need to go in and there's things that i need to heal acceptance i think talking to women in their lives and asking them honest questions trying to connect with other men is really really important and asking really deep honest questions trying to create safe spaces for them to express or feel things but honestly if you can afford it i would say therapy if you can't afford it i would say books like man enough or you know the og books like bell hooks of will to change there's so many amazing books written about this topic about masculinity that i i'd say dig into that would be kind of the first step and just recognize that this world is telling us something that isn't real and the social rewards that we seem to get from being at the top of the food chain are actually hurting us more than helping us and all of these issues are intertwined in mental health and physical health and all of these things i think if you want to be a happier person this is something that you dig into 
where would you say, where are you on your journey? Like what, what do you feel like you've sort of mastered and what do you feel like you're still sort of, you know, struggling with? I'm at the beginning of my journey still, Maria. That's what's so crazy is like, I've been in this for years and years and years. And yet every day I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> how did I not think of that? Or why did I say that? If I've mastered anything, it's apologizing. It's apologizing. And that distance between the act or the thing I said or letting my emotions take over or whatever it is and the apology, the the deeper I go and the more healing work I do, the, the shorter that distance becomes. That's something that I always use to measure where I am in terms of my process. The quieting of the ego is a lifelong journey, but I think apologizing is probably... <laughs> what I've become fairly good at. And there's so many things that I'm working on. I'm just, I'm, su I'm still such at the beginning of this journey. Mm -hmm. There is, there is no end. I think it ends, it ends when we're in the grave and we no longer have to be in on this plane of existence anymore. We're all individually and hopefully collectively evolving. What, you know, I, I think I saw a recent post we were talking about being gentle with yourself or, or remembering to be gentle with yourself. Obviously, you have a very busy life and um, and just within this crazy world, how do you kind of keep yourself centered and balanced in the right headspace? I feel like we all are sort of needing to to do this lately. Therapy, prayer, meditation, movement. Those are the things that I'm working on. But I also think it's important if there's an area that we should lower the bar, it's here because it's elusive and it's a moving target. And I think that it's almost like spirituality and mental health has intersected with capitalism. And we have this idea of what health is and what mental health is and spiritual health is. And the truth is, is that it's different for everybody and it's different every day. Balance I don't necessarily believe is achievable. I think you can make priorities. I think that that one day balance might look different than another day. Mm -hmm. But what it comes down to is a deep, deep sense of self and, a, and reflection, being mm -hmm. really radically honest with yourself about who you are and what you need and being truthful because there might be a day where like you just have to and need to work all day long Mm -hmm. and there's going to be areas that you neglect. And if you don't listen to yourself and you do it again the next day and again the next day and again the next day, you're going to drown out that voice and you won't even be able to hear it anymore. Mm -hmm. But if you work all day and you neglect a lot of the things and you don't beat yourself up about it and then the next day you say, okay, I'm going to make sure I take some time to myself today. And then you don't beat yourself up about it because by taking that time, you are neglecting some of the work Mm -hmm. Again, you'll never find balance if you aren't willing to to be strong and and make those sacrifices. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the socialization and the system does not follow you where you're going next. Mm -hmm. It doesn't follow you to the grave. It doesn't follow your mm -hmm. your soul, which I believe we each have a soul, and that soul is going to move on from this world. But if you don't listen to it, you're I think depriving yourself of teachings and learnings and opportunities for growth. So every day looks different. I don't believe, I believe balance, you have to measure that balance every day. And I think it starts with a deep, deep, fearless search for truth in yourself and not comparing it to what anybody else is doing and being really mindful of the shame and that negative inner critic that is so powerful in all of us that says we're not doing enough or we're not doing it right.
Yeah. I remember when I, I interviewed Ariana Huffington, she called that your obnoxious roommate in your head. That always stuck with me. That's like, they yeah. be able to identify that. In the Baha'i writings, we call it the insistent self. Yeah, the ego is the insistent self. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. evil whispering one. <laughs> Now I had, I'd done this campaign with Gloria Steinem and I'd sort of, you know, challenged her to think of a phrase that described her overarching philosophy. And she came up with the, the, the phrase that she selected, she, she still talks about a lot is we are linked, not ranked. It's actually now on a bracelet and which seems like we are linked, not ranked, which is such a powerful framework, I think, for thinking about so many false hierarchies and divides that we sort of, you know, impose against each other. What does we are linked not ranked me to you. And do you have like one overarching philosophy that you would say sort of guides you? First of all, you just dropped Gloria Steinem's name like it was nothing. And you <laughs> said you challenged her. And then you asked me a question. I'm like, well, I'm not going to be able to answer. <laughs> <laughs> that was the wrong word. I did not challenge. <laughs> I was like, no, I was like, I'm like, well, what do I have to offer this? I, nothing. Jared, just leave it. Leave it with Gloria. Oh, it was for a phrase that had to get to fit on a bracelet. If no, you, if I you love it. Know, I'm so, just, for my I'm organization. Just, but no, yeah. I'm, I'm just joking. I think that was I just know. really that was really cool. You're a badass. <laughs> um, what does linked not ranked mean? I mean, I think it's brilliant what she said. I mean, the patriarchy ranks us like it puts us into rank and order. And the idea of linked to me is the is the building block of unity, mm -hmm. right? What is that? What does that visual look like? It looks like all of us linking arms, building bridges, right? Creating this interconnected world where we are all one it ties into my fundamental belief like in the baha'i faith that we are the fruits of one tree and the leaves of one branch we are one drops in an ocean mm -hmm. baha'u'llah says so powerful is the light of unity that it can illumine the whole earth when you rank people what you're essentially doing is is creating a creating a hierarchy in which you have to win at all costs i, I believe this world is just like it's like a marriage if we're in an argument and we're against each other when one of us loses, we both lose, right? Mm -hmm. So so if we're thinking about humanity in the same way and we're all the children, right, of, of this being, Mother Earth, universe, whatever you wanna call it that created us, when one of us loses, we all lose, right? Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have different gifts, different tools that maybe we're born with, different, different ways of expressing our purpose here and just like in any army, and I hate to use a war metaphor, but this actually I think will make sense, there are necessary roles to accomplish a certain task. But those roles, I believe, are all meaningful and important. We don't celebrate a general more than we do someone on the ground who is risking their lives on the front lines. We need both of them, right? The medics are just as valuable as anybody else. And I think that's if there's, if there's one thing we can take from war, which is terrible, it's at least the organization of it is everybody is, everybody matters. Mm -hmm. We all have a role here. So sure, there might be ranks and army and things like that, but they're not, but in our life, in this world, it's not competitive and we don't have to fight over each other to get that rank. It's more about what is your natural gift versus what is mine? Oh, you're somebody that is great at public speaking. I don't really like it. Let me be behind the scenes. I love to be of service and help you. And we all have these roles here that if we allow ourselves to take them on without criticism or judgment that we're not doing enough or that we're not in the limelight or whatever, then we're actually linked. For a last question, you know, this podcast is called Shift Makers. So what 
paradigm shift do you think is most important that you would sort of most want to see in the world? And, you know, are you hopeful that we can achieve it? I just want us to recognize that we need to heal. Mm-hmm. When I see, when I drive down the street and I see road rage or when I see people mad at each other or when I go into a store and I can just tell somebody's having a bad day or somebody's upset or I see these like videos online of people on flights that are like causing a fuss and yelling at each other and I see this racism and all like I see all this stuff and I'm just like I just why can't we see that we need to heal yeah I just wish all of us could take a second and stop like turn off our phones I wish the internet would just die for like Mm. an hour in that hour we could just meditate and look at ourselves and you know and see all the work we have to do on ourselves before we project out all the work everybody else has to do and I don't think, you know, we talk about accountability culture, but I don't think we, I don't think we're accountable. I just wish we could pause and take a breath. My wife once said that the greatest activism is self-activism. And I don't think we, any work can really truly start unless you do that work on yourself. Otherwise, honestly, I hate to say it, it's performative. You know, that's, that's what virtue signaling is. And guess what? Everybody's doing it. So taking a breath, going deep, and recognizing that we need to heal, I think is one of the deepest, most important, fundamental spiritual teachings that exists in all religions, and that we need right now more than ever. Justin and I spoke shortly before the recent passing of Bell Hooks, who he references in this interview. She was a celebrated American author, professor, feminist, and social activist. In her profound book, The Will to Change, Men, Masculinity, and Love, she wrote, quote, Healing the crisis in the hearts of men requires of us all a willingness to face the fact that patriarchal culture has required of men that they be divided souls. We know that there are men who have not succumbed to this demand, but that most men have surrendered their capacity to be whole. The quest for integrity is the heroic journey that can heal the masculinity crisis and prepare the hearts of men to give and receive love. To learn more about Justin's podcast, visit manenough.com slash podcast. And to learn more about Justin's upcoming film and television projects, visit wayfarerstudios.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us again. Shiftmakers was created by Marion Schnall, and season two was developed by Joy Donnell. Story producer and editor A. Kirsten. Research assistant Angela Joshi. Some audio mixing by Timothy Dixon. Special thanks to Emiliano Lamone. For more information about this podcast or our host, Marianne Schnall, please visit marianschnall.com.